So the quote that is the title of my message today is a quote from Barack Obama who said, a change is brought about because ordinary people do extraordinary things. A change is brought about because ordinary people do extraordinary things. And so this message that, or the, the scripture that we heard today is one that we're familiar with. It's after Christmas, after the baptism of Jesus, and Jesus is now beginning his ministry. He's already returned from the desert. And he's out preaching and healing, and he's wandering along the lake. He's not yet called disciples, but he sees Peter and Andrew and Zebedee, and he says, come and follow me, and they drop their nets, and they, they, call, they, they follow him, and off they wander. And so what is it that Jesus calls us to? What do you think, or tell me what you feel when you feel, when you hear this story again. What is Jesus calling us to? Serving others to trust, right? They had, the disciples definitely had to trust. They had to let go of everything they knew and walk into a, a new thing. And and serve others, absolutely. Jesus modeled the healing and preaching and teaching. That's in the story today as well. Other things. Renewal. 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 Any other words come to mind of the call? Responding to Jesus. Jesus' call in particular in relation to this story. To change. Transform. One of the things that I like to, one of the places I like to preach from is understanding call, especially Jesus' call and the gospel's call, is the call to transform lives in the name of the good news. But how we go about that transformation of lives, starting with our own, is dependent to, to some degree on how we understand the gospels and what the good news is. And so I wanted to continue a little bit from last week's sermon in, in exploring and unpacking where Christianity is today. Where, I have another question for you all. When you think of us, not, not your own personal theology now, but the, our community here at, at Campbell United Church of Christ, when you think of the big broad labels like conservative, evangelical, liberal, progressive, where do you feel we are as a community today? How would you, if you were describing CUCC to your friends and you said, well, we're a we're liberal, progressive, I heard others. Progress. Progressive and evangelical, because we wanna we wanna spread the spread the good news. Other that is that every anyone have a different label that you or sort of broad category you put us in. Go ahead, Lauren. I beg welcoming. Right, exactly. We are welcoming. And that, that is part of the, the liberal and progressive view for sure. And um, to help us understand and unpack progressive Christianity, I wanted to, to talk about what that is a little bit. So back in 2011, this is the year that I started seminary, 2011, nine years ago, which is hard for me to believe today. Yeah, right, that was like yesterday. Uh, a gentleman called Reverend Roger Woolsey, who is now an ordained United Methodist pastor, and he directs the Wesley Foundation at the University of Colorado at, Bo at Boulder, he wrote this article and 
published it in the Huffington Post. And he said, um, here's what he said. I just want you to hear and reflect on it. He said, I'm a Christian, but I probably shouldn't be. If you're a young adult in America, you probably shouldn't be either. The odds are increasingly against it. Few friends who went to high school or college with me, and even fewer of my more recent friends and acquaintances, identify themselves as being Christian. Many of my peers who were raised in the church have shifted away from Christianity toward other religions or increasingly to no religion. A few years ago, the Barna Research Group conducted a study of young people asking them what they think of when they hear the word Christian. And the top three answers were, what are your guesses? Prejudice? Hypocritical? What was that other one? Republican? Judgmental? Yeah? You're on track. So the top three, I mean, they were paraphrasing basically what they said. The top three answers were anti-gay, exclusive, and judgmental. So that was kind of in our, that was in our realm of imagination. That was kind of where we were thinking. So this, so he said, so this, the article was published in 2011, and he referenced a research uh, from a few years prior to that. So I don't know the exact date, but it, it's, you know, uh, in uh, 2006, 2007. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so then he goes to under, he unpacks what progressive Christianity is a little bit. Progressive Christianity, he says, isn't progressive politics. So here's, here's the complex, right? He's got, he's, he's unpacks it. So some big words. Progressive Christianity is the postmodern influenced evolution of historic mainline Protestant Christianity. All right. And is heir to the social gospel movement, which is important, which was the late 19th century, early 20th century. And it draws on, these are terms that I don't expect you to, to necessarily just know off the top of your head, but things like process theology, which focuses on sort of in the imminent God and creation. Liberation theology, which most of you would be familiar with. Feminist, womanist, and eco-theologies as well. So those are all the streams. So those are more academic terms of theology, but they are those progressive liberal fields of theology that, infu- that infuse and inform progressive Christianity. And now I'm going to read for you a, def- a working definition of what progressive Christianity is. And this is from an article that the same gentleman, uh, Roger, published last year, so 2018. He's still very active. So we're going to read it through. We're going to go slow, and I'm going to comment on it a little bit as I go through. And he published, just so you know, it's in, in Patheos online. So here's what he says is a working definition of progressive Christianity. It is an approach to the Christian faith influenced by post-liberalism and post-modernism. We've said that. Proclaims Jesus of Nazareth as Christ, Savior, and Lord. Those are familiar but he defined, they're defined quite differently in progressive Christianity. We'll talk about that another time. And it emphasizes the way and teachings of Jesus, not merely his person. 
emphasizes the teachings of Jesus, not necessarily who he is as a person. It emphasizes God's imminence, so God suffusing creation, God in each of you, God in everything we know and touch, rather than the transcendent God who is above everything and, um, you know, omnipotent outside of our realm of understanding. And it leads, so here's another big words. It leans toward panentheism, which is, again, the imminent God. God is everywhere. God is here and now. God is everything we see and touch. It's a sort of a, we can experience God in our immediate life, rather than supernatural theism, which is, again, that transcendent God. Am I making sense so far? All right, I, I want to rush this, because I know there's some big words here, but transcendent means something that is outside and above, like the God in heaven, rather than the God of the, right here, like the God in you, Kathy. Absolutely. That's the imminent God. The God in you and the God in everyone here is our imminent God. All right. It emphasizes salvation here and now instead of primarily in heaven later. Salvation in the here and now is really important for progressive uh, Christianity. This we talked about a little bit last week when we talked about Martin Luther King and his work. So Dr. King was very much focused on the salvation of the here and now. What does it mean to transform lives today so that the belovedness of all people is recognized not only interpersonally but structurally by the, by the policies, by the ways in which we organize our life in a corporate communal way? That makes sense? All right, any questions on that so far? All right, good. We're going. We're getting there. We, we'll talk, we can talk about this more as well, one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. All right. It emphasizes being saved for an abundant life today. It actually doesn't believe in hell. Progressive Christianity doesn't recognize the existence of hell. So we've lifted that up a little bit. And it emphasizes the social communal communal aspects of salvation instead of just the merely personal. So the social communal, again, is Martin Luther King's ethos. It's about how we work together, again, in community, creating, transforming communities that transform lives to, to support life and abundant life today. And it takes the Bible seriously, but not literally. Does that make sense? Yep, beautiful. All right. It also emphasizes, here's another big word. It emphasizes orthopraxy. Right now, it's a big one, right? Take a wild guess what orthopraxy means. Good practice, right? It's from the Greek. So orthopraxis or, you know, right action rather than right belief. It emphasizes that how we act in the world is more important than whether we believe the right things. And opposed to orthodoxy, orthopraxy rather than orthodoxy. Exactly, which is right belief. Beautiful. Thank you. Yep. It embraces reason as well as paradox and mystery, which is uh, I, what Becky lifted up last week, which was 
you know, we can have the reason part, but the mystery is still there, the beauty, the unknown, the things we don't know. And instead of a blind allegiance to rigid doctrines, it does not consider homosexuality to be sinful, does not claim that Christianity is the only valid way to connect to God. It's, of course, sort of that, you've heard the saying, all paths lead to God. So it's not, you can find God not just through Christianity. And he wrote this working definition in his book called Kissing Fish. Christianity for people who don't like Christianity, which is a great title. But Kissing Fish, the, the, the image is, I love it because it works for the scripture for today where you're out fishing. So do you know the, the, the fish as the symbol of Christianity? It was on our sign for a long time. And then, so there's this, the Christian symbol kissing the Darwin fish. Have you seen that on bumper stickers where you have the fish? It's got little feet, the fish with little feet. And, and, and so the, the emblem he uses is those two fish kissing. And so the title comes from kissing fish. And so it is even that metaphor, that visual metaphor, is sort of an update on our scripture, right? Nobody had talked about evolution back in Christ's time. A lot of the stuff was unknown. So even that metaphor is an update on our scripture today, sort of the God is still speaking. So we're living into it. So there's, there's your little sort of the basics of progressive Christianity. And I do want to emphasize that one of the most important aspects of progressive Christianity is that it definitely leans toward what we call the moral influence or exemplar theory of Christianity. We've talked about that in worship before, and that is focusing on the actions and following Jesus as teacher rather than on the substitutionary or atonement. Do you remember what substitutionary or atonement means? No. I beg your pardon? The cross. Right. So most of us, so certainly of my generation and older, grew up with the belief that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was a substitutionary sacrifice. And, and that this belief was taught, and, and certainly what I inherited. So that belief is still very current in the world. But progressive Christianity de-emphasizes that belief and moves much more toward the exemplar, sort of Jesus' guide. So now when someone asks you what progressive Christians believe, when you're talking with your friends and you're talking about CUCCR, do you feel better prepared to say, hey, this is what we're all about? Totally, right? But this is important because when someone asks you, well, well, tell me about CUCC, it's not only important to be able to say, we're a really warm, loving community, come check us out. It's really important to be able to say, here's why we're relevant. I totally know that young people don't, you know, really enjoy Christianity. They've heard these awful things about what Christianity means, but we honor and recognize and celebrate Christianity in all these really relevant ways for today. And especially if we're talking with younger people, we need to be able to articulate what's exciting and relevant about that. So that's why it's important to sort of break it down, unpack it, think about where we are, where are. So, we, so we're talking about the theology that I teach from and preach from and that we as a community embody. So, but it may be different from your personal theology. 
And it's important to recognize where those differences exist, to hold those in tension, and, 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 and sort of sit with that. Be like, our community believes this. I, I'm a little bit more over here, but I just want you to know this is where we're coming from as a community. So that's what's important about that. And so where I'm going with this is if God calls us, I have to go back to my, to my early notes, if Jesus is calling us to transform lives for the sake of the gospel, and here we are talking about progressive Christianity and who we are right now and who we're hoping to become, there's this other idea that's relevant to our moment as a church, both um, broadly speaking, Christianity, but also as who we are as a church at Campbell UCC, and that is our understanding of messiahship, the whole understanding of what a messiah means, what it means to be saved, and how we take responsibility for our lives within this, right? For thousands of years, Christianity has had this idea, taught this idea, that someone else is going to save us. One, Jesus has already saved us, Jesus has proclaimed, certainly proclaimed our belovedness. So if, if we go back in time, 2,000 years to early Christianity, people already believed in their belovedness. That was what Jesus taught from. He encouraged people to transform their lives from that place. That's what Dr. King taught from. So it's, it's an, uh, an ancient idea and a current idea at the same time. But if we truly believe that we are already beloved... And we, as a progressive church, don't necessarily teach that Jesus died to save our sins, for example. What does it mean? What does the Messiah, who does the Messiah become for us? Who is going to save us? I might not have set that question up well. It's up to us. Exactly. So when Peter and Andrew dropped their nets and they were saying, oh, we're ready for something different. What were they saying yes to? Why did they follow Jesus? How come they followed Jesus? Yeah, they wanted to be part of changing their lives. And changing life for other people, too. Hence the ministry of healing, of teaching, of saying, Where, who are you? Where are you in relation to the Roman Empire, to the um, temple leaders? What does salvation look like to you? What is the kingdom of God in the here and now? And remember, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that this is long before when Jesus called Peter and Andrew and the others, this is long before he, the word God was ever associated with his name, centuries before, at least a century before. So who were they following? What were they following? Tell me. Go ahead, Becky. Mm-hmm. 
Right, right. Yep. Rabbi, exactly. All right, we'll do a little thought experiment. I come to you, I come to you Becky. I say, we're going to go out and we're going to do a, a mendicant ministry, kind of like um, Francis, and you're going to drop everything, and you're going to just follow me out. And, and, and would you? Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Amen. It is. So it's totally. I agree. They had no clue. Right. So, so. Beautiful. So we're going to, that, there's a lot of data there. So, so say, so we know that Jesus was reasonably well-educated. He certainly, uh, for a man of his time, at least as well as probably other rabbis, because he had some standing in a synagogue, and he certainly taught with a great knowledge of scripture. And so he goes, he's out and about, and he, he's talking with fishermen who probably don't know how to read, probably, if they're devout, probably did go to synagogue. And heard the scriptures, and they probably do have this understanding of authority, right? Of, of, of people being better than them because they know more. So maybe authority was at work. They, rec- you know, when someone more, with more authority says, come do this, they do. But even in that situation, I, I would offer that if you're talking about giving up your family and your dad who's in the boat, there's probably something more at work there. Because even back then, they, you wouldn't necessarily drop everything and follow just because some... Guy told you to do it. Go ahead, Rusty. Right, that's absolutely beautiful, right? <laughs> you don't clip that part. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so this is an aside which we'll deal with during Lent because we're going to talk about healing during Lent. But related to that, right, for every healing story, just consider this for a second. For every healing story in the gospel... Think of the crowds around Jesus, right? Think of all the people, ill people in the crowds who did not receive healing because there wasn't time. 
or their illness couldn't respond to that particular kind of healing. I mean, just think of us here, my own life, how much healing I need, right? How many miracles did not happen? So we're just going to sit with that. We're going to unpack that a little bit more during Lent. But, so I want to go back. So imagine you, we are, we're the fishermen, or in women, uh, we'll make it more contemporary, and maybe we don't know how to read, and we, we follow this authority figure who can work miracles, who, who has gained this reputation, and we call him anointed, the Messiah, who is going to lead our people out of oppression and poverty. He's going to lead us into the kingdom of God in the here and now, and he's going to be the Messiah, reclaim the throne of David, and Israel is going to be whole again, and we are going to be independent. So maybe that's in their back of the mind, as I think Becky was suggesting as a possibility. That's, if they were devout, that would have been where they came from. Yes, go ahead. I believe the power of God came over them. And they really didn't know why they were done, but they just knew in their hearts that they had to. I love, I, go ahead. I didn't want to cut you off. Well, no, that's fine. Beautiful. So that, I, I think instincts are play a role. And Terry, and then I'm going to finish where I'm going. Yep, you go. Interestingly, though, you didn't say, you're a fisherman. I'm going to teach you the computer program. Uh, right? I'm going to teach you to do something with your gifts and your talents to fish for men. I'm going to teach you to be fishers yeah. of people. Take your gifts, and I'm going to use them with them where it goes next. That's an easy, great way to get people captured is to be one who, like them, is over your I'm going to empower you. I'm going to empower you to finish that sentence another way, or that thought that Terry offered. I'm going to empower you to save yourselves, to be authentic. Imagine the disappointment of the early disciples hiding in the room that the person they thought was going to save them has been crucified. Where is the kingdom of David? Where is the triumphant march? Where is the restoration of Israel? Where is it? Yeah, it's in the grave, in the tomb. It's been hung on a cross. It's been tortured. Where is the hope? So how does, how does it, if we're really serious about 21st century Christianity, what does it mean to be saved? Tell me. To know love. To love of whom? Go ahead, Kathy. To love yourself, to love others. To be so caught up in the spirit of God and the spirit of Jesus that we pour out into the world to transform lives in the sake of the good news. Saved. It's not 
Exactly. So if Jesus were to ask his disciples all through his ministry, and Mark was best at this, because whenever people asked him, including Herod, he would say, who do you say that I am? Right? Who do you say that I am? So what were people projecting onto Jesus at the time? You're going to be the son of God. You're going to save us. You're going to bring back the kingdom of David. John the Baptist, too. And what did Jesus say? What was his life? What did he, how did he respond? He responded by saying, I love you so much, and I love the belovedness of each person so much that I am, rather than lift my hand against you, including my enemies, I am prepared to be sacrificed on the cross and tortured. And I am so committed to that lesson that not only am I teaching that the Messiah is not your Savior, the Messiah is the person who empowers and teaches and guides and cajoles and encourages each and every human being to save themselves. Because that is where transformation of lives for the name of the gospel and the sake of the gospel begins. It begins in our commitment to our belovedness as people of God. Our willingness to take responsibility for that self-love. Our ability and skill in living out that love to support others in transforming their lives and in taking responsibility for life, for the integrity of our own, each individual lives, and to uphold the integrity of every other life. And again, I, just because last Sunday was Martin Luther King Jr. Sunday, I point back to Martin Luther King who, in our life, right, he, yes, he was a leader, and he represented that for not only the African-American community, but also many in the white community, after his assassination, mostly for the white community, but has become to represent that for us. But the civil rights movement only worked because why? Because ordinary people who were cleaning other people's houses, because, right, they walked to work for weeks. Rather than take the bus, they went through incredible hardship. They said, we are tired and we are going to work together to enact change. For the sake of the gospel, we're going to transform our lives by God. And we're going to suffer. And it's going to be hard. But going back to Barack Obama's quote, he said, A change is brought about because ordinary people do extraordinary things. And so, in conclusion of this particular message today, I am inviting us to think about how, as a community, certainly one, we do, in progressive Christianity, we're still concerned with personal salvation. Our, Our individual ability to experience joy and abundance in life. 
And, and what do we need to achieve and accomplish that? We are invited to reflect on that and, and seek and actively search for those things that will enable us and empower us to experience joy and abundance. So yes, personal salvation is still incredibly relevant. Right? And then the other part is our collective, our communal salvation. What, do we, uh, what can we offer the world as a community for the salvation of the world, the kingdom of God, and the here and now? And that is the question of our renewal process. What can we bring to the world? And our, perhaps our evangelical mission. What, how are we going to take responsibility for our community and living into that progressive Christian message? And how are we going to share with the world for all those young people who are, yeah, if you're Christian, you're these three things. How are we going to share with them that that's not who we are? And why is it important that we do that? And then finally, uh, today is we're we're having our renewal meeting. And we've been talking about renewal for a little over a year, a year and two months how many of you are feeling uncomfortable about what we've done with renewal so far? All right, cool. Uh, I don't want to put you too much on the spot. Are other people feeling uncomfortable? Okay, a couple of you. All right. But. Got it. So some people, so I heard you, Terry, say, I'm, I'm not uncomfortable because the change that's happened. I'm uncomfortable because the change hasn't happened. Did I hear that? So, so, so if you're comfortable, I don't, again, I don't want to put you on the spot, but how many people, I feel, are you willing to participate in this experiment? How many people are roughly in the area of, I would wish change happened quicker? One, two. All right. How many of you are uncomfortable because change has happened too fast or, or is, is changing right now? All right. All right, Kathy. Yep. Thank you for being honest and sharing. Absolutely. I'm glad you talked with Terry. And you and I, we can set up a one-on-one meeting and talk about it. And we can take all the time we want. Totally. All righty. So I offer that because... We know when renewal really starts, when we're all feeling incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> right? You will know when we truly enter the renewal process because you almost can't bear how uncomfortable it is. And you are losing your minds because it is so uncomfortable. So you are dropping that fishing net on the beach, on Galilee, and you are following this. You don't even know where you're going, but you're following somewhere. You're like, oh, my God, this is so uncomfortable. I just left everything I know behind. But you're doing it because you believe in something bigger and greater than ourselves as individuals and as a community than what has existed so far. So we are having our renewal team meeting today. And I will just offer that we are still preparing to renew. We are still preparing. We have not yet begun to renew. 
And the other thing I ask, invite you to take seriously, is that a congregation of this size, we're about 35 in worship on average, have been for about seven or eight months. Active participants in our congregation, the people who are keeping our ship running, afloat, keeping our sails hoisted and trying to steer, you know, swabbing the decks, right? All that stuff. There are about 10 to 15 folks who are the crew of this ship and people working hard. And I am in awe of the work that you do, just keeping our ship afloat. Many of us who are not engaged, I feel, really do not understand the time and the commitment and the love that is brought to swabbing our decks and the way that it keeps running. And then the other thing that I invite us to offer with that in mind is that at this stage, when we talk about renewal or revitalization, we're not talking about just a little update, right? We're not just updating a little bit. We are changing everything. And so for us, when we renew, if we can achieve that scale of change, I'm giving you a little warning today that because that scale of change is necessary for renewal in this setting, how is it going to feel? It's going to feel un. Bearable on a scale of 1 to 10, when we're talking about renewal of this scale, we're talking about what scale of discomfort? 11. Yes, beautiful. Thank you. And I am promising you that every single person in this congregation will feel that level of discomfort. Every single one of us, if we successfully enter that process. And who is going to make that happen? Who's going to, who? Yes. We as individuals are going to save ourselves first. Because we as individuals, we are the only, I am the only person I can save. I can say, I am absolutely I cannot, and, and, and counselors will tell you this, you know, if you've ever been uh, told that you are in any way codependent, you know, the first thing the counselor says is, oh, no, you can't change anybody else. You can't save anybody. The only person you can save is you. This is one of the truisms of modern psychology, right? We begin by, one, taking responsibility for ourselves in our lives and in this context, and then bringing that responsibility as a gift to the community, the gift of ideas, the gift of inspiration, the gift of being willing to be really incredibly uncomfortable, the gift of grace, because we are only going to get through this if we allow ourselves as individuals and as a community to make mistakes. If we can't make mistakes, we can't move forward. We can't. So one of the first things we have to do is build in for individuals and as a group, that permission to make mistakes and to build in grace into that process. And then 
we can move off the plate because right now we've been hitting balls in the batters. There's a, I love faith because you always remind me of the, oh, the Giants, right? The San Francisco Giants, right? So we're still on the plate. We're still batting balls. We haven't moved off. We haven't gotten to first base yet, but we're looking at first base. Oh yeah, we can see it. We're like first base. Our first goal is first base. So when we have our renewal team meeting today, we're going to be looking at first base and we're going to be exploring how to get there. And then we're going, to, we're going to figure out at the end of the meeting, we're going to be like, we're going to step off of first base. And what does that step look like? I'd say we'd probably gotten off maybe a step because we're talking about mission and vision. We've got a group going. We're, we're exploring. We're trying to figure out what's next. But, but we're still a long way off. And each of you bears a part in getting us where we want to go. And that's all I got for today. Does that feel like enough? Yeah. All right, good, 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 good. But this is where we are, and this is, this is how we get where we want to go. And every Sunday, whether we're talking about renewal explicitly or not, even if it's not explicit, it's going to be moving us that toward our first base, okay? May not, we may not talk about renewal in the message, but, the, but everything we do needs to be with our eyes on the prize. All right. God of love, may we be the change we want to see in the world, and may you make us capable, each of us, of doing extraordinary things, large and small. Amen. Beautiful.